0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Andre Pagliarini, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and contributor to such publications as The Guardian, The New York Times, Responsible Statecraft, and Jacobin, joins us to discuss U.S.-Brazilian relations in light of Brazil's President Lula da Silva, visiting President Joe Biden in the United States. We'll also be discussing the history of Lula da Silva's political career, the misperceptions about his left-wing politics, and Lula's foreign policy ambitions for Brazil. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now, on to the conversation with Andre Pagliarini. Welcome to Parallax Views. Andre Pagliarini, Assistant Professor of History at Hampton-Sydney College in Central Virginia and non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. He's also written for such publications as The New York Times, The Guardian, New Republic, Responsible statecraft, and of course Jacobin. Uh so how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks.
1: Uh looking forward to the weekend.
0: <laughs> so, Andre, if you could, I wanted to have you on the show to talk about uh Lula da Silva, uh Brazil and US foreign policy. Uh, maybe for listeners that are unfamiliar uh with Lula da Silva, we could talk a little bit Uh, about his stances and some of the history behind uh, his political career in Brazil, if you would be so kind.
1: Absolutely. So uh, the second half of the 20th century in Brazil, uh, the Cold War was defined by a real suspicion of left-wing politics, especially after the Cuban Revolution um, succeeded and toppled the government of Fugencio Batista. You had the United States government, but also conservatives in Brazil saying it would be a real disaster if Brazil followed that uh, the Cuban example and became a left-wing country. So in in 1964, there was a military coup in Brazil, um, anti-communist explicitly, that put in a military dictatorship that would last 21 years. And during that period, the government was very quick to crack down on uh, organized labor, the student movement, really, you know, forms of uh, explicit opposition. The newspapers uh, and and magazines and so on were were censored. So that's the context in which Lula emerges on the national scene in the late 1970s, leading uh, a re-energized and a a kind of uh, re-engaged union movement. He uh, comes from a very poor family. He has a a third grade education. but really, finds a voice and finds himself within the factory workers, the metal the metal workers union in the area around the city of São Paulo. Um, and so his politics are shaped by that experience. They're shaped by the experience of you know coming up through the ranks of organized labor. He's very comfortable negotiating with with peers, but also antagonistic forces. Um, uh, but he's also you know, intensely aware of the history of exclusion um, in Brazil. And so this really shapes his politics, creating the Workers' Party in the early 1980s, um, along with other allies. That experience of party building is also key to his political identity, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll say more about.
0: So then this is also uh, not his first time in office. I know there were controversies um around his previous terms, and and there's been debate about those terms. So uh, could you talk about his previous times in office, just for listeners that need caught
1: up on this? Absolutely. So the Workers' Party is founded in 1980 by Lula, but also allies in the Progressive Catholic Church, uh, left-wing intellectuals, other social movements, uh, still in the dictatorship, though, right? So civilian rule would not be restored until 1985, and it's not until 1988-89 when there's the first direct election for president. So Lula runs for the first time in the 1989 presidential uh, race, and he comes pretty close to winning. He makes the runoff, uh, but but falls short in, in, in the second round. He would run four times before finally succeeding in 2002, uh, a victory that I think clearly owes much to the fact that he had moderated his appeal, he literally started wearing better fitting suits, you know, sort of looked the part of a respectable politician. Uh, He was tired of losing, he says. Um, And so he comes to power in 2000, and uh, he's elected in 2002, enters uh, office in 2003, you know, very much riding on the credibility he built since the late 70s as a union leader, a left-wing figure, but also by 2003, willing to tell the market I'm no radical I'm not going to you know follow a path that will fundamentally transform Brazil's uh, economic orientation he preserved uh, much of the uh, economic framework of his predecessor Fernando Henrique Cardoso which the PT denounced you know as a sort of neoliberal and privatizations and all that um and so he this turns out to be a very successful formula marrying his left-wing history background appeals his populist style with very serious uh, uh sober economic policy uh so he's criticized the, from left yep go, sorry go ahead
0: I, I was gonna say is this to say i mean you, i i think you were gonna get into it with he was criticized by the left but how are we to understand his sort of politics because you know i think there's people on the right that view him as like oh he dangerous socialist brazilian uh you know, and then there's people on the left that say he's not radical enough. So where does yeah. he sit in things? Because I'm not sure he's exactly like a um, a centrist in the sense that we would think in the U.S. either. I think he does have uh, sort of left wing positions and stances. So how do we understand him within that context?
1: Yeah, Lula's, I think, gift politically is to be able to be in a room with whatever group, if it's workers, if it's businessmen, and to find a point of contact, right? Something that he and, and this group uh, can can agree on, or, or, to, or to articulate interests in a way that converge. Um, this is one of the arguments made in a recent biography of Lula by John French that is really good. It's a really good analysis of Lula's appeal. And it's his ability to f- sort of link his uh, political positions, his place in the political spectrum with an audience. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so he's criticized from the left because uh and, and, and i mean you know sort of very generally because they say but that by that the early 21st century he had moved himself and his party so far from sort of where they began which was as a coalition of uh, trotskyists socialists members of the former armed left left-wing left wing movement movements to one uh that was this is their critique uh that, that's essentially neoliberal or of neoliberal continuity with his predecessor um for example Pesso, the party of socialism and liberty which is a relatively small left-wing party but it's seen some has seen a tremendous growth in recent years they form as a dissident party out of the workers party early in lula's administration when lula oversees uh, a pension reform plan for government employees that parts of the workers party say is a betrayal of the working uh, you know, government work employees who supported the, the Workers' Party. So he received some, you know, flack from, from his left. And of course, there are the parts of the business community and, and sectors on the right who's, who, as you mentioned, see him as the kind of face of organized labor, which they see as corrupt and and, and kind of self-serving um, or as populist and demagogic and, and just, you know, sort of nefarious. Um, and yet... You know, to your point about, well, I don't think we would recognize him as a centrist in the United States. I think that I think that's true. Within Brazil's deeply unequal society, you know, the United States is becoming more unequal, but it's not right. It's not at the levels of Brazil. Uh, Someone like Lula, who is able to transcend a really low station at birth and and, and, uh, is, you know, very impoverished parents. To reach the point that he has through the, the the union and organized labor and so on, that's an enormously appealing ideal for millions and millions of Brazilians. So, when we, when we think of Lula as a sort of at the center as a as a kind of center point for Brazil's political spectrum, it's not that he's ideologically a centrist, but it's that the polls left and right. Um, for in large part in recent years, tend to organize around him. So it's not that he's a centrist, but in a lot of ways, he is at the center of Brazilian politics. Uh, a kind of, uh, you know, in terms of the way other forces organize, it's around Lula. And, you know, the last point I'll make on that is that there is there are good things to that and there are bad things to that, uh, to this kind of centrality of one figure in Brazilian politics. Can you delve
0: into that more? What, what are the maybe pros and cons there?
1: Yeah. So from the party's point of view, of the, the Workers' Party's point of view, they they might be at a point where Lula as a figure is bigger than the party, by which I mean his appeal uh, is bigger than the party. So, for example, if you have an election where Lula is not the candidate, can the party appeal broadly enough among, say, working class voters who don't necessarily follow politics day in and day out, but they know Lula, they recognize Lula, they see themselves in Lula? Can the Workers' Party continue to uh, win elections once Lula leaves the scene? He will eventually. Right. He's not he's no spring chicken. Um, Another potential sort of con to this is that. You know, Lula, his centrality in the party and has that. Crowded out space for the emergence of new leaders uh, within within the Workers' Party, you know, he he receives this critique often that Lula does not allow others who might challenge his standing to emerge. Maybe there's some of that. Um, you know, people say, for example, that he picked a successor, Joma Husef, who did not have her own kind of political standing, but would have be indebted to his having selected her. But, you know, on the flip side, Lula, even those who despise him, he's a generational talent. They don't just make guys like this know on an assembly line uh, as it were he really is a a a generational political figure that you know one would be hard pressed to think we're just going to sub him out for, for for somebody else he is that 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 central um i think in a way that that's that that's positive right that in a country like brazil lula arouses intense animosity from parts of the elite you know who who distrust uh, the masses, let alone someone from the masses being elected president. but I, I can't help but see this as a profoundly good you know positive image that this working class person managed to reach the presidency, the most powerful office in the in the in the country. any other country, if it's if it was the United States, that would be celebrated as a, as a success story. And I think there's a lot to be celebrated in 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 his life's story, overcoming incredible adversity. Uh, building a party in the Workers' Party that is the largest, most popular, most accessible party uh, over the course of its of its creation, since its creation, um, in Latin America. So as I say, there are some negative things, perhaps, but also there's a lot of good, I think, that's come out of Lula's role in Brazilian politics. I think that's true, what you said, too, about him sort of
0: being, um, he's almost like a larger-than-life person. I don't want to use larger-than-life because that makes him sound like a some glamorous person that isn't um, with the <laughs> masses. And I don't think that's what he's going for, either. but like just the fact he's that, icon- human, right? What's that
1: he's become an, an iconic figure of the global. Yeah. Life. He's
0: iconic. I mean, I, I go, I go to his Wikipedia page and it mentions that he is known uh, mononymously as just Lula, you know, and I think that's an indicator of, you know, he is this iconic personality that you can
1: just, you know, you just know him by his first name alone. And he, leg- he legally changed his name. Uh, Tulula, right? It used to be a nickname, and now it's legally part of his name.
0: So then, uh, just briefly, and I, I do want to get to his his visit to the US, but I wanted to talk a little bit about his original time in office from 2003 to, I, I believe, around 2010. And I guess there were some controversies there. There's people on the left that will argue that Lula was sort of railroaded by these investigations into corruption against him. Uh, could we talk a little bit about those controversies and his time in office? Uh, from 2003 to
1: 2010. That's right. I'm sorry, I got I got sidetracked. You, you asked me that earlier, um, right? So he comes to power and he marries, as I said, a kind of populist, left wing mass appeal with, in, in, to a large extent, a preservation of an economic model that he inherited. Now, within that economic model, he did a, a lot of things, a lot of innovative social policies, the cash transfer program Bolsa Familia, the you know, gave direct cash to uh, to needy families to keep their ch- their kids in school, and who got their vaccinations and so on. Um, what became clear, though, still in his first term, the scandal known as the Main Salon, uh, sort of the big allowance, as it were, was that the Lula administration was essentially paying out of public funds diverted from different sources for members of Congress to support legislation his administration was putting forward. This becomes a major scandal, a vote-buying scandal that many thought would lead to, if not impeachment, him losing a uh, re-election in 2006. Now, w- one way to think about the Misalong scandal, this the scandal, was, yes, a corrupt scheme by which the ex- executive was buying support from the legislature. Another way of thinking about it, though, is that the traditional way of k- doing politics in 20th century Brazil is that... You would, if you're the president, you would lot, you would fill your, your your cabinet with members from different parties. Brazil has dozens of parties. So everyone would have a slice of the pie for their own sort of corrupt ends. What the workers' party said when they came to power is: look, we're serious about public policy. We have a whole host of things we want to implement. We're not going to seed the cabinets. To you all corrupt parties rather you stay in congress we'll just instead of you coming to the cabinets and taking up space and you know hoarding off hoarding off uh, money for your own ends we'll just pay you you stay in congress we'll pay you so that we can actually carry out the the policies that we want to uh, implement in, in in the cabinet this is the argument many on the left make is that like yeah is it is it great no is it worse than what had been going on before Probably, you know, I don't. Probably not. Um, In any case, that first term is kind of a moot point because the first term is is such a success in the eyes of so many people, right? That the Lula administration delivers so many tangible improvements to the neediest Brazilians that he wins re-election quite easily in two thousand six. Although some close to him uh, do end up going to jail over the mensalão scandal, those who were, you know. Planned it and, and, and actually did the financing and, and moving the money. Lula was able to say he didn't know, you know, sort of a Teflon uh, thing. His second uh, period in office, second term, I should say, um, would end in the wake of the 2008 global crash, which, again, I think in large part because of good policymaking, quick uh, economic policymaking, does not initially affect Brazil in a huge way. Lula famously says, That the tidal wave of the global economic crash was arriving in Brazil as just a small little wave, like a tiny little wave. That's the kind of confidence towards 2010 or so that Lula is feeling about Brazil. Brazil, you know, is this global success story of economic growth, uh, hailed as a model of how to reduce poverty um, through sharp, you know, uh, social policy making. Um, But there too, uh, you know, there are consistent um, arguments that Lula is sort of uniquely corrupt in the Brazilian political landscape, that the Workers' Party is uniquely corrupt, which from my point of view is just simply doesn't, doesn't hold water, right? Because, you know, part of the critique, the the criticism that Lula is uniquely corrupt, um, you know, overlooks the fact that when he came to power, he's the first working class president ever elected, he's entering a political system that everyone in Brazil, every single person on the street will say, yeah, it's corrupt. So my perception is that he's often faulted for not having completely reinvented the political system. Right? In order to do anything when he came to power, they had to play the game. You know, One could fault them and say, well, they should have torn it up root and branch and started over. But that would have confirmed, I think, the ideas that Lula is an extremist radical. Do you see what I mean? So, if he had done more to unseat the system as it was, he would have been seen as an extremist radical. Well, by playing in the system, he's seen as corrupt and and so on.
0: I, I so, was going to say, do you think? I mean, so I know some of his welfare programs, like, and I, I'm I'm hoping I'm not mispronouncing names like a uh, Bolsa Família, um, Fome Zero. Uh, do you think these his pushing for welfare programs? played a role in like did it create enemies for him on the right wing that wanted to use this image of oh the corrupt
1: uh, Lula uh, to sort of see him unseated at some point this is where some historical perspective is useful because every time in 20th century Brazil and I, and I don't want to get too you know there's a way in which this can be kind of a crude almost cartoonish argument but I think there is something to it every time there's been a a a progressive or left wing leader in 20th century Brazil who takes seriously the task of addressing enduring inequality. They have been criticized literally along the same lines. They're corrupt. They're power hungry. That's, you know, João Goulart, the president in in 1964, who was toppled. He was not a communist or a socialist, but he was associated with labor unions. He was part of the Labor Party. And he was toppled in '64 along the lines that he's a uh, you know either incompetent, corrupt, or a communist. It's those three lines of attack that are made against him. And again, it's no coincidence. In the days before his coup, the coup against him, he had committed himself to an agenda of structural reforms, land reform, housing reform, all kinds of things like that. So a lot of the language against Lula is you know verbatim the same kinds of critiques and it's not a coincidence that it's because he represents an agenda and a coalition dedicated to ameliorating those uh inequalities. So that's that's no doubt. but there is the different the different point of him being the first, as I said, the first working class president uh, from the Northeast, that's also an, an important part of his political identity, the fact that he's from the Northeast, which, in the Brazilian political imagination, is sort of backwards impoverished. That's part of, I think, the prejudice uh, that he has long faced as well from political elites. Um so that that has played into it's in a way, it's been sort of a source of strength, but also a source of political weakness for him. This idea that he's uniquely corrupt and so on,, uh, you know ends lands him in jail eventually. For a scandal, which maybe we' will come back to in a minute, but that you know, co- by comparison with what so many other leaders looks incredibly f- uh, fragile. But it's also a source of his strength, this popular connection that he has with millions of Brazilians because he is clearly in his affect, the way he speaks the, the you know the way he is of the working class. And that helps us to understand his incredible endurance as a popular political figure.
0: So I think you were you were alluding there to um I think it was Lava jato or um Operation Car Wash, that that uh the corruption investigation and prosecution. Uh just speaking about that briefly, what are the main flashpoints to understand?
1: So so basically um Operation Lavajato or Car Wash um is an investigation into a systematic corruption scheme within the state oil company by which through kickbacks uh, and direct corruption payoffs, um, these large corporate uh, construction companies—you know, the kind of companies that build uh, oil platforms or you know, kind of big infrastructure projects—we're getting kickbacks through state companies and funneling them to politicians connected with the Workers Party. So Lula is ultimately ensnared in that bro- this broad investigation that says he de- received direct benefits from a construction company for overseeing contracts that, that, that they got from, from the state. So the, the, re- the, the thing that ultimately lands Lula in jail is this uh, allegation that there is an apartment that's owned by a construction company in this working class city, beachside city of Santos, that again, it looked incredibly frail. Lula had never owned it. He had never actually used it. Um, but it's enough to ultimately land him land him in prison. Um, and there's a sense, we maybe we'll come back to this as well, that the whole thing has been kind of cooked up in order to get him out of the, the running for the 2018 election. Um, this is still very much a kind of current sore spot for the Brazilian left. Um, and it's Lava Jato ensnares really powerful people across the political spectrum. Lula, but also the Speaker of the House who oversaw the impeachment of Lula's successor, Jomo Um, So it's this real broad effort by prosecutors, but also supported largely by the press. You know, we think uh, in, the, in, in the United States of like the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Fox News as kind of, you know, the, the conservative voice. Now imagine if virtually every major outlet in Brazil had a similar editorial line. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. That the editorial line is very conservative across the board. So this effort to, from the left's point of view, demonize the Workers' Party um, is incredibly uh far-reaching and deep. And leads to the lowest point for the Workers' Party in its whole history, which we were discussing earlier, which is Lula's arrest. Uh, in 2018, um, and the election of Jair Bolsonaro. In fact, I've argued before that Bolsonaro is the the greatest beneficiary of Operation Car Wash or Lava Jato.
0: Real quickly, uh, in in regards to how the left responded to Operation Car Wash, you know, I I mean, there's a whole other side to this where you have uh, people making charges against Lula, but you also have the charges against um, the judge in the Lava Jato case, uh, Sergio Moro, He was accused of basically lacking impartiality in the trial and basically uh, conspiring with others to prevent his presidency in a a
1: 2018 election.
0: Uh, Could you speak a little bit to that issue?
1: There are people who will say Lula got off on a technicality from imprisonment um, and that he shouldn't have been allowed to run in 2022 and been elected. To them, I say, well, if you think that, then the person you should be angry with, angriest more than anyone, is the judge overseeing the case, uh, Sergio Moro, the judge who was who became the darling of this conservative media establishment, seen as the intrepid jurist standing up against the status quo and the powers that be, and, and you know, and all and all this. Well, as you alluded to, it turns out that he was behind the scenes conspiring with the prosecution against Lula, the defendant. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a historian, but I don't think you need a a, a, a law degree to, to understand that if the judge is behind the scenes colluding with the prosecution, suggesting witnesses, suggesting, you know, giving tips on legal strategy against the defendant, that judge, his ruling is not impartial. And, so, right. so and we found kind of, that out
0: through, I think, leaked uh, telegram messages. It got reported in uh, The Intercept, right? Yeah, that's
1: correct. Yep. Uh, so this was a bombshell report. Uh, from the Intercept, uh, basically, uh, a hacker got in touch with a left wing politician. Left wing politician put them in touch with Glenn Greenwald and the and the folks over at the Intercept, who really, you know, it was one of these cases. Uh, there are a few of these throughout history, right? Where uh, I'm thinking like Watergate, where the media, the newspaper outlet or news outlet, has a direct, clear, enormous impact on a nation's political course. That really changed things. It changed the the, the narrative around Lavajato, around Lula's innocence, that he did not get a fair trial. Um, and so this, you know, this helps to reset things um, a little bit. Lula comes back, you know, he's very good at playing the aggrieved political party. In this case, he really was the aggrieved party. I mean, he, you know, uh, he went to jail um, in a context in which everything had been cooked up. Against him, um, and so going back to his union days when the union was being suppressed by the military dictatorship, that's a kind of language that Lula is very powerful in. Aggrievement, uh, uh, you know, righteous anger—he's very good at that sort of thing. Um, and so this helped, not to mention uh, Bolsonaro's. Maybe we'll come back to this, but his calamitous administration. Those two things combined. To really change the terrain of Brazilian politics in recent years,
0: yeah, I wanted to come into that a, a little bit. Bolsonaro's reign of power, and uh, just uh, playing off what you said, that he was really the biggest beneficiary of this. What was the fallout from that? You know, uh, because it, it's interesting. I think as his sort of reign as the president went on, the Brazilian relationship with the U.S. I, I would say deteriorated a lot. So, uh, can we talk about Bolsonaro? And also Bolsonaro in relation to the US and, and US Brazilian relations.
1: I mentioned Lula came to power, encountered a political system that was corrupt and had been that way for a for, for, for long, long time, and operated skillfully within it. What Lava Jato did was largely criminalize politics, basically saying if you were involved in formal politics in some way, you are tainted. or or at least at some high level. Of course, the the Workers' Party had been in power for 13 years before Joma's impeachment in 2016. So the implication, of course, is that the political establishment is irredeemably corrupt, and the Workers' Party kept winning elections, keeps winning elections. Well, in that kind of cauldron, there is uh, an attempt by many voters to say, well, who isn't tainted? There's a window there for far-right actors to say, all these center-right challenges to the to the Workers' Party haven't gone anywhere. Uh, we need a more legitimate or more forceful challenge to the left in this country. Who could that be? Who could that be? Here is this guy who's been in Congress for over two decades a gadfly shouting into the wind that the dictatorship didn't go far enough, that they should have killed more people. That's Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro emerges as this, you know, uber anti-left figure in a moment in which the PT is at its lowest political point. He's not a guy with a firm political backing. In fact, very few people think he can actually win because in Brazil, traditionally it matters uh, what party you're in, what your national infrastructure looks like. Bolsonaro has none of that, and yet in this anti-politics uh, context around Lavajato and anti-workers party sentiment, he's able to appeal to a lot of people who are tired of politics as usual, um, and prevail. And so, so that's that's maybe the first commonality I would point out between what what happens in Brazil with the right with the right wing and the United States with the right wing. I, I remember. Uh, You know, 2016, as 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 Trump is beginning to emerge as a credible political figure, this argument that look, we've tried the Romneys, we've tried the McCain's, doesn't work. We need a more forceful, a guy who's really you know willing to tell it like it is, and and all that. Well, it's not. It's a similar dynamic. We need someone who's not going to play nice, and he represents that better than anyone. The problem, and and, and I was going to
0: say, you're not. You're not overselling anything when you talk about his like, oh, we didn't go far enough. I mean, I've I've seen Bolsonaro uh he uses rather
1: violent rhetoric uh to put it mildly. In the 90s just as an example, the sitting president Fernando Henrique Cardoso had been exiled. He was a left-wing intellectual in the 70s. Uh 60s and 70s had been exiled during military rule. In the 90s he was president. Bolsonaro goes on a news show saying the dictatorship has killed more people, including the president, he said. I mean, really violent rhetoric. Um, But by 2016, 17, 18, that kind of more forceful language against the left, there's an audience for it because the PTA kept winning elections for 30 years, but also was revealed to be in the eyes of many, uniquely corrupt that we needed a more forceful challenge. Problem is that when Bolsonaro wins, none of that translates into actually knowing how to govern. Bolsonaro's approach in office is to continue stoking anti-left, anti-communist, you know, uh, sentiment. But there reached a point where, and I wrote a piece, one of the pieces I wrote in The Guardian uh, says this, they reached a point where like, buddy, you're the establishment. You're the guy now, right? It doesn't... No one's buying this idea that the left is conspiring against you. You're the ones in power. And he failed to deliver, um, in a lot of ways, material benefits to millions of Brazilians, which is what democratic politics is all about. Who's going to deliver? You know, voters aren't stupid. They know who's better for me, who's, who's, who's not. So, you know, one of his main achievements is radically liberalizing gun laws in Brazil. Brazil had pretty strict gun legislation. That's one of the things that Bolsonaro is able to do. A lot more guns flowing through Brazilian hands right now. Um, Environmental legislation goes largely unenforced during his four years in office. Brazil has very stringent environmental laws, but laws are only good if they're being enforced, right? Um, And there's a deep alignment ideologically in terms of personality between Bolsonaro and, of course, Donald Trump. What's interesting about that relationship, though, is I wouldn't say the United States and Brazil became closer under Bolsonaro. I would say the personalities did. That's an important distinction. Bolsonaro looked to Trump as an ally, a validator, right? Someone who could uh, shore up his own position at home if needed, but once Trump loses and Biden comes in, there's nothing to show for it, that approximation between US and Brazil. There was very little concrete um, actually came out of that for Brazil, for Brazil's benefit, for Brazilian interests.
0: Well, just, I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, his closeness to Trump, I, I think, turned a lot of other people in the U.S. off. Um, you know, I, I, I saw a lot more media criticism of Bolsonaro and whatnot, uh, because, and I think it was in part because of that closeness uh, to Donald
1: Trump. This is one of the things I I, you know, I, I wrote about this a lot of time. I, I, I followed the, the relationship pretty closely, and I would argue, you know, OK, even if even if you like what Bolsonaro is doing if you're a supporter is it a good idea to so directly tie your administration bolsonaro to a u.s administration that might not be around that might lose an election they open you know bolsonaro and his sons were openly rooting for bolsonaro to win uh you know uh i'm sorry for trump to win in 2020 well what happens as a matter of you know diplomacy if Trump doesn't win now you've backed yourself into a corner diplomatically Brazil um for a new administration and so it shouldn't surprise us that when when Biden was inaugurated bolsonaro was the last democratically elected president to acknowledge his victory to recognize his victory um that was a really low point for Brazil U.S relations and you know that that relationship never recovered Biden and bolsonaro um, as far as i know the two men never spoke on the phone you know so in part lula his visit last week was explicitly as a reset you know that, that we're not going to conduct this relationship brazilian united states as one of personalities lula and biden this is this is a, a an important partnership between two important governments we're going to treat it that way so the two men got along biden and lula but i think Lula was very careful to say this is in part why his visit was so short, less than 48 hours. I think they were driving this point home that unlike Bolsonaro with Trump, who made a big deal out of we're buddies, we get along, we see eye to eye, this was a reassertion of a state to state relationship.
0: I I wanna get more into that. I also was wondering, uh, can anything be said about Lula's first two terms? What was his relationship with uh, the US like in those first two terms?
1: Lula has talked about that period in a, in a somewhat surprising framing. He said that when he came to office, uh, he overlapped um, there with uh, George W. Bush, right? Of course, Lula was, takes office in 2003, and there was much talk of the there being tension between Lula and and and, and George W. Bush. Of course, uh, Lula tells this tells this great story when he was at Davos for the first time maybe it was Davos, maybe it was G20, one of these big international sort of uh, meetings. And he he says he was at his dinner table there with the Brazilian delegation and George W. Bush walks in. And he said, every table, other countries got up to greet the U.S. president. Everyone's, oh, Mr. President, everyone stood up. And Lula, he tells the story. He told everyone at his table, nobody get up. Right. Nobody stood. When we walked in, we're not going to stand for another head of state. And then finally, George Bush made the rounds and made the way to his table, and then shook his hand, and they, and they, you know, got along. The point being, Lula, he tells the story, other countries will respect a country that respects itself, right? We're not gonna, you know, act like the president of the United States is any better than the president of any other country. And Lula says that they had a surprisingly good relationship, a personal, a good personal relations with with George W. Bush, because he says. Um, they didn't agree on a lot of things. For example, free trade in the Americas, uh, uh, as, as a you know major major uh, policy difference. But that Bush was direct. He he would tell you, "I disagree. We're not going to BS you." And the contrast he's making when he says that is with the Obama administration. Surprisingly, you know the Obama administration, again, there would, would be an, an apparent affinity there between you know center left Obama, center left Lula. Um, Lula, uh, Obama very famously, when he meets Obama for the first time in one of these international forums, says Lula is the man, the most popular politician in the world. And yet Lula's people complained that behind the scenes, the Obama administration would say one thing publicly, but act against them uh, behind the scenes. So ironically, the relations with the Bush administration were more honest and direct, he says. Um, And that's kind of a, a surprising thing, but it gets back to what we were saying about not allowing the relationship to be dictated only by personality, by personal affinity, but that interests, Brazilian interests need to be served, U.S. interests from the Brazilian point of view are legitimate, but they don't always align with ours. And that's an important point I think Lula was trying to reassert last week in D.C., yeah, let's talk a little bit
0: more about the DC visit. Where do you see him, uh, Lula, positioning himself and positioning Brazil in terms of their relationship with the U.S.? Because the impression I'm getting is he's sort of saying, you know, we want to have good relations, but also I'm I, I, I almost get like a, a sort of a a sense that he wants Brazil to be friendly with multiple nations um, and sort of almost be non-aligned in some ways, uh, not not taking. Uh, one specific relationship and, and going all the way with it uh, to the detriment of all others.
1: Lula sees Brazil's competitive advantage, to use that economic term. I'm not an economist, but that's the one term I know. Brazil's uh, competitive advantage is its ability to get along with just about any country. And by get along, I mean to find some angle of collaboration, trade, you know, cultural um, exchange, research exchange, to find some way of of connecting with almost every country on earth in ways that the United States, given its history as a global empire, you know, in a lot of in all places, it simply can't. It's, it's compromised its credibility in a lot of ways. So Lula, from his point of view, Brazil can help mediate, can help find resolution, can help find a peaceful outcome um, in places where the United States can't, where China might not be able to, where Russia might not be able to. There are some in Brazil who say that this is an absurd idea, that little old Brazil, a country that's a developing economy, that still has a lot of poverty, can hope to play that kind of high-level role in international diplomacy. There are plenty of people who who argue that, plenty of people. In fact, Bolsonaro's foreign policy was one that really sought to uh, rein in the expansion during the PT years. During the Workers' Party years, for example, during Lula's first in office, they drastically expanded the number of embassies abroad, consulates abroad, Brazil's global footprint. That was, was, was reduced under Bolsonaro, under the argument that like, who are we kidding, right? Brazil is not a major international player. We're spending a lot of money on these bases, uh, on these consulates and so on. doesn't make sense. Bolsonaro's argument was one that uh, it also has a long tradition in Brazilian diplomacy, which is to say, the best path for our development and our, to grow our economy is alignment with the United States. That if we can have the United States as a major partner, you know, secure US investment, be welcoming as as much as possible, that's the surest path to our success. Lula's foreign policy tradition that he comes out of is to say, no, right? The surest path to our development and success is a more holistic global outlook. We're not going to be anti-US, but we're not gonna be automatically aligned with the US either. And that's a point Lula, I think, made really clear on this visit, which is to say, we want friendly friendly relations. We want to emphasize the points where we agree and we can work together. But we're not going to guide our foreign policy, Brazil being Brazil, by U.S. foreign policy. We have different uh, priorities. We have different interests. The things that China does or Russia does that annoy the United States, uh, harvesting IP, Right, or in the case of Russia resisting NATO advances, all these things, not issue to Brazil, not these are not issues to Brazil. Those are not going to be obstacles to Brazilian foreign policy for relations with those countries in the way that it's in the United States. And so Lula wants Washington to recognize that. And to its credit, I think, at least publicly, so far the Biden administration has. They're not forcing Lula to take a harder stance in the Ukraine conflict against China. Um, again, at least publicly, recognizing this role that Lula wants Brazil to play as someone that can uh, mediate some of these thorny disputes in the hemisphere, for example, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Lula resists taking a really hard line against those administrations, those regimes, because he wants to be in a position to mediate down the road, which will require credibility, right? That we are not automatically aligned with the United States, we can be an impartial voice. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, I think he even mentioned um, Venezuela saying that, you know, in the same way that I am against territorial occupation as Russia did to Ukraine, I'm against much interference in the process of Venezuela, which uh, it sounds like that's in reference to uh, the controversies in Venezuela and and U.S. sort of meddling there.
1: Exactly. And Lula was, you know, again, some quarters harshly criticized for that, saying that he is characterizing Ukraine the Ukrainian government as in some way equally culpable for the for the conflict in Russia and so on when what he's really arguing is the question of sovereignty is central to, uh, to Brazilian's foreign policy perspective that whatever disagreements or criticisms the United States has of Venezuela Cuba and Nicaragua those are sovereign countries any solution to the problems there need to be achieved in negotiation with those governments not through coups and, 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 and you know overthrows uh, and so on, as has been so common in, in the history of Latin America, of course. And he makes a, a similar point about the situation in Ukraine. Yes, Lula does not criticize Russia in the same language as Washington. He doesn't. He says that both sides have some responsibility for the events that led to the conflict. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not endorsing that or, or disagreeing with that. Um, but it's in order... From Brazil's point of view, it's in order to preserve the ability to talk with both sides, to be able to to talk with Russia down the road, for example. In fact, one of Lula's foreign policy proposals that he brought to Washington was the idea of creating a kind of club of nations that have nothing to do with the war that can help find a resolution immediately. This got no no buy-in from Washington, which insists that peace should only be discussed when Ukraine is ready for it um and so it's it's a different perspective, right It's a different vision of how to achieve peace. uh the United States says we're going to support the Ukraine until uh, support Ukraine until the war is won basically until Russia um, is defeated. Brazil says no no, we need to find peace now negotiate now um, and Brazil should play a role in that very different visions.
0: So then uh, with regards to the future of uh, U.S.-Brazilian relations, uh, you know, there's a lot of recent history that, that, as you point out in one of your articles, uh, could lead to lingering hard feelings and suspicions, uh, especially amongst uh, the Brazilian left when it comes to uh, Washington, D.C. So, you know, for instance, you mentioned um, U.S. National Security Agency uh, spying on Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff. Uh, how are these things potentially going to play into the U.S.-Brazil relationship going forward? How can uh, these recent historical moments be navigated? I know I'm forcing you to speculate a bit here,
1: but wh- wh- how do you think this could play out? I think that that recent history is in the background of how the Lula administration is dealing with the United States. Brazil, you know, Lula is, is surrounded by very good diplomats Celso Amorim is a key strategic advisor. Mauro Vieira is the Secretary of State, essentially. And you know, diplo- good diplomatic form prevents them from denouncing the United States openly, as someone like Chavez might have. So they're not openly saying, "We know what you did last summer, Washington, we, we remember, but I think it's there. And, and, and the, the tell, as I mentioned, I think is how short the visit was. I don't think they fully trust the, the United States. Despite the fact that the Biden administration You know, recognized Lula's victory quickly, you know, uh, offered support after January 8th. So the Biden administration, I think, is trying to signal that it's willing to be a good, solid partner for Brazil. And yet, right, and yet there are parts of the Workers' Party that distrust the US uh, intention in the Western Hemisphere. And it reinforces this idea that Brazil cannot, will not, must not automatically align itself with Washington. It needs to preserve these points of contact with China, with Russia. I mean, China overtook the United States in recent years as Brazil's largest trading partner. There's no way Lula is going to sacrifice that relationship because Washington is concerned about Chinese infiltration of the Western hemisphere. No way in the way that uh, under Bolsonaro, the Trump administration tried to pressure Brazil, for example, not to allow Huawei to set up 5G in Brazil, there's no way Lula is going to jeopardize Brazil's commercial relationship with China because Washington wants them to. This is what I mentioned earlier about different priorities, different perspectives. You know, Washington, and I know this from conversations I've had with State Department people, you know, low level diplomats, who are going to Brazil, they say, don't, don't the Brazilians understand that you know the Chinese model of technology sharing is exploitative, right? They 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 they're gonna they want to set up 5G and they're gonna lock Brazil into these exploitative long-term arrangements. I'm saying yeah but they don't see the United States as benign either right there's a recognition that US interest in Brazil is also self-serving. Just as China's interest is self-serving everyone has their own interests. That they're chasing that they're pursuing um so i think that that's a a key sort of reality check that the lula administration is bringing back to brazilian foreign policy that was largely absent during the bolsonaro years
0: what do you think the major flashpoints are when it comes to understanding uh lula's foreign policy approach and how would you characterize his foreign policy approach like if you were to use a few words to characterize it what would they be
1: I do think the idea of independence an independent foreign policy, this is harkens back to the 1960s when uh, President Johnny Quadros in 1961, you know, he was uh, featured in uh, Time magazine. He had a piece in Foreign Affairs magazine at the time called Our Independent Foreign Policy. Independence in the sense of not being beholden to the United States vision of the world order or China's vision of the world order or Russia's vision of the world order. So uh, independence, I would also say assertive, right? Lula firmly believes the US, uh, Brazil can and should, should be playing a bigger role in international affairs. He pushes very frequently, for example, for for Brazil to have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. He wants Brazil uh, negotiating uh, hemispheric deals through Mercosul with the uh, European Union. So assertive, independent, um, I would also say, you know, uh, one that's eager to collaborate. You know, Brazil is looking for exchange, uh, scientific research exchange programs, you know, under Gemma Josef, she had a program called uh, uh, Science Without Borders, where Brazilian graduate students and others were sent abroad to acquire, you know, skills and come back. So they're looking for all, all, all kinds of stuff um, like that, and major flashpoints. Um, there, there's a good relationship now, um, publicly between the United States and Brazil could that change in the face of Chinese encroachment in the Western hemisphere from Washington's perspective, you know, that could be a a source of friction, the role of China in in South America. Um, another potential element is a great example is during Lula's last in office, He attempted a kind of end run around Washington and the European Union and negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran, for example, that could address the question, concerns about Iran's nuclear program while also recognizing sovereignty and Iranian interests. That did not go over well with the Obama administration. right? So one could imagine uh, the Lula government trying to assert itself in international affairs in ways that the United States sees as its prerogative. Right. For now, the, the 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 line from the Biden administration and um, Juan Gonzalez, who is the leading Latin American advisor on the National Security uh, Council for the for the Biden administration, was on a podcast recently. And he said, our approach is not to try to dictate to Latin American governments because it doesn't work. What we want to do is collaborate and and so on. That's the right, at least. Language, at least they're, they're, that's the right uh, line to take rhetorically, because, you know, from the U.S. point of view, if they want Brazil to uh, be a productive partner, you know, in, in and all, in, in all that in all that ways, you want to resist alienating Brazil and forcing Brazil into a diplomatic corner. Lula, I think, has the chops and the eagerness to have Brazil play a productive role in democratic uh, global politics and uh, you know it, it, it depends on having a us administration that is able to work with that so i just had one or two more questions i guess um you you know i think
0: it, it, we're in an interesting moment when it comes to uh, brazil and and you know lula being back in power because i've seen some people argue you know lula isn't hard enough on uh, maduro or other figures in latin america um, who I guess centrists and the right would deem as, as authoritarian and even elements of the left. Right. But on the other hand, I've, I've also met leftists who think that, oh, Lula's not a radical, you know, he's not a revolutionary. Um, and I think he would admit that he's a, a reformist, albeit a, a strong reformist. Um, right. But what's interesting to me and what I'm driving at is, uh, I think there's people on the left that view him, uh, with suspicion saying he's not radical enough. And I've even heard people on the left that I I know of that I've spoken to that say, oh, he's going to roll over for the U.S. He's too moderate. Um, and then there's people on the U.S. that don't think uh, the, the U.S. sort of centrist or, or right-wing side that think he's uh, too left-wing. So wh- what do you think the big misperceptions are uh, by the left about Lula and then the big misperceptions on the right and maybe the centrist side about Lula?
1: In the U.S., Left. You know, I see this a lot, you know, by a lot of DSA people, Jack people, not all, but, you know, some Lula is this a model socialist leader in the world. Uh, you know, he's a genuine, pure socialist, which overlooks exactly what you say. In Brazil, there are plenty of people on the left who say he's a sellout. He's a neoliberal, you know, shill. I, I was going to say that that's exactly
0: I was referring specifically to people I know in Brazil that don't think he's far left enough. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad right. you picked up on that. Yeah.
1: And 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 what's interesting, though, is that to keep in mind, is that Lula himself has never had a big appetite for what he sees as academic debates around socialism and leftism. He could you know, he couldn't care less about that. These high minded, you know, Tro, you're a Trotskyist, no, you're a Maoist, no, you're this or that. His whole politics is how to address you know, inequality and, and so on. So he's clearly a, a leftist. He clearly puts himself on the left uh, as a, you know, he, in the past has called himself a socialist, but he's not interested in purity displays, right, of, of ideological purity and and, and and anything like that. Um, so I think that, that that sometimes gets missed in the United States where there's a U.S. There's a left wing in this country, understandably, that wants models, that wants you know, kind of icons, and that might say, "Well, Bernie Sanders is a compromised figure. Lula is the pure one." When, as we've been discussing in this conversation, there's pl- plenty of points throughout his career where Lula has made compromises, has, you know, uh, uh, angered many people in his own coalition on the left. Um, and the question is whether one thinks that that's sort of okay or not, all things considered. Is it worth? Lula being back now for a third term in office, given what it's taking to get here. Again, there are some of the left who will say, basically, no, it's better to have, you know, someone who's a more pure figure building over time and, and a more radical, you know, transformation. From my own vantage point, I am much happier to have this style of politics in Brazil, that the, the, the workers' party represents that Lula represents, because I think it it, it it's better in a way for for everyone. I think it's even better for the United States if it allows itself to recognize Lula as a partner. I think there's a lot of ways in which Lula can help, um, as I mentioned earlier, address from a different angle, many of these really intractable, sticky problems that the United States, for all kinds of reasons, can't, not least in its own hemisphere. So uh, you know, I've, I've given the Biden administration some credit, at least publicly, for not trying to limit Lula's foreign policy ambitions. They haven't really said, you know, don't get don't get ahead of yourself. Don't you don't be too big for your britches. Uh, and I hope that that's a positive sign that the United States is recognizing. Hey, this is a large democracy with, uh, you know, natural resources, a youthful, big population. Uh, let's treat them as legitimate partners. That's what Brazil wants, is to be seen as a legitimate partner. Lula has insisted Again, against some of the 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 ideas that you that you were describing there from the U.S. right wing, he says, "I'm not a Maduro, I'm not an Ortega. I've always respected democratic outcomes. You know, uh, we're we're not talking about left wing revolution. We're not going to jail dissidents. Uh, you know, you read the Wall Street Journal sometimes about Lula, it's like they're talking about someone who's a complete fictional character. You know." for all his faults this is a guy who has deeply deep commitments to democracy he built a political party he was briefly jailed under the dictatorship uh you know a real democrat small d democrat and i think that that's important to recognize when it comes to foreign policy as well that you know he's not going to cut ties with china or russia or anything like that but he's also not a total uh apologist for human rights violations. The question is striking that balance between Brazil Brazil's interests and human rights abroad, for example. And that's a balance that the United uh, the U.S president has to make that every leader has to make. So I it sometimes bothers me when we hear criticism in the United States. well Lula, you know he's turning a blind eye to Putin to Russia Well I, I yeah, in a lot of ways statesmen have to do that does you know does Lula personally think? the invasion of ukraine was a good thing or anything like that probably not as a matter of state policy though brazil interests brazil's, brazil's interests dictate a more cautious approach it so sounds like think, he wants
0: to take a rational approach in terms of um what is best for brazil
1: right and exactly and i think one of the thing the, the keys elements of, of lula's foreign policy is basically for other countries to recognize that. That look, the US president will hold hands with the, the 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 king of Saudi Arabia, who has a horrible record. Sometimes you have to make these trade-offs in foreign policy. And I think Lula says we deserve the right to make some trade-offs too, in pursuit of our interests. And that's okay because we're democratically elected. We have a commitment to all kinds of good progressive ends. Sometimes you have to compromise. Do you think uh, the, the last two questions I had here first were, um,
0: and, and I know we've sort of, this is rehashing, but it sounds like the issue when people look at Lula is that, you know, there's some people that will say, oh, you know, he he's not far enough. And other people that will say, uh, you know, he's a radical, but really it seems like, you know, he may not be trying to completely overturn, say, um, neoliberalism, but he does represent a push away from certain aspects of it, right? Um, In other words, he doesn't want to necessarily have a revolution, but he does want to have strong reforms within the system itself, uh, which pushes him uh, to the left end of the political spectrum.
1: He is a a dogged advocate of reversing the trends towards uh, privatization, for example, that dominated Bolsonaro's economic agenda. So he insists on Petrobras, the national oil company, remaining a state owned oil company. He insists on uh, revising, for example, the sale of Electrobras, which was the state um, uh, energy utility. So in that regard, uh, he's very, uh, very much against that central tenet of neoliberalism, which is the privatization of utilities, uh, uh, for example. So I I agree with you, right? it's it's not that he's completely uh, overturned the legacy of neoliberalism of his predecessor, uh, Fernando Cardozo, but it's that through his own initiative, he is attempting to steer a path away from it, not so much undoing the path. He's sort of chipping away at it and and moving in a different direction. Yeah, and and, and refusing to carry it forward, uh, refusing to allow it to uh, continue. Again, privatizations being the the, the main focus uh, focal point of this, but also another example is his insistence on using state-owned banks to uh, finance infrastructure projects in Brazil and abroad. Um, that's you know not something a, a neoliberal would 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 do. You would you would you know private banks should be allocating private uh, uh, capital. From 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 the, the neoliberal point of view, he says no. The state has to use all the the tools at its disposal: state banks, you know, subsidized credit, um, in the service of Brazil Brazilian uh, industrialization and development. So yeah, I agree with you. He's not the neoliberal that some might criticize on the left, and the far left would criticize him as being, but he's also not the sort of radical, wide eyed revolutionary that the Wall Street Journal editorial board talks about, right? He's still using the state, uh, uh, you know, and and dealing with elected officials to implement these policies. So he again, a small D Democrat with an assertive social democratic vision. You know, I have a
0: lot of listeners that are interested in um, Israel and Palestine, and I know Lula has some pretty firm stances on that. And, uh, you know, he's probably one of our most pro-Palestinian politicians. Could you speak a little bit to his Views on Israel and
1: Palestine. So I mentioned the critique of Lula's foreign policy that he might put human rights, uh, he might look askance at human rights when it comes to friendly regimes like Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, uh, and Cuba, because they're ideologically aligned, that somehow he doesn't walk the walk when it comes to human rights. Well, the Brazilians would say there is perhaps no bigger human rights, this is from, from their point of view. Than the situation of Palestinians, a uh, human rights concern than the situation of Palestinians. And that's a situation where they speak very strongly in favor of uh the, the right of Palestinians um and criticizing um uh, state of Israel. So you know it's part of this broader framework I was just describing of Brazilian for uh diplomats under Lula, I think they chafe. At what they see as the hypocrisy, oh, Lula is not in favor of human rights because he wants to be out on, on on Cuba and so on. Well, they'll say, well, what about Palestine? That's just that's a, that, that's an area that they are deeply critical of uh, the the Bolsonaro government's moves, which were very much in line with uh, with Trump, you know, moving the capital, uh, for example. So you, that's that. This is a key issue you mentioned earlier. Potential sources of, of friction between Brazil and the United States going forward. This could be one um, uh, as well. Of course, the Biden administration doesn't exactly get along with Netanyahu uh, either. It's not really aligned there. So uh, I think we might expect more from Lula um, when it comes to Israel and Palestine uh, in public forums, uh, public fora internationally about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I
0: think he just dismissed um, Brazil's ambassador to Israel um, in in January. So it it does sound like he's... Uh, signaling a shift away from Bolsonaro's policy when it came to Israel and Palestine.
1: And what's interesting is that a friend of mine, Michelle uh, German, who's a a Brazilian researcher on uh, Israeli politics in Brazil, he wrote a really interesting book about how pro-Israeli and really anti-Palestinian arguments became core to the far right in Brazil in a similar way as it is in the United States. So Bolsonaroism really, uh, you know, be, embraced the idea of, you know, the iconography of, of of the Star of David and of Israel in in service of what my friend uh, Michelle Garman says is uh, a broader far right um, agenda. So part of what the attacks that we can expect from the Brazilian far right against Lula in the years to come, will be, I think, that he has not been a friendly enough ally to Israel. So that'll be a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, arena to watch uh, in this broader new foreign policy under Lula. To what extent are they willing, I think they will be, to stand apart from the United States on the issue of of Palestinian statehood and the Palestinian rights. Uh, it's a real potential source of friction, especially especially depending on who wins the U.S. election uh, next year, right? Because if it's a right-wing Republican, uh, that could really be a source of tension uh, in which the Brazilian position would be put to the test.
0: It's interesting, too, because I think uh, 2024 also marks the uh, bicentennial of U.S. recognition of um, Brazilian independence,
1: right? exactly there was some expectation that that a little bit more would be made out of that when lula and biden met we thought that you know that there, there might be more to say although they did say uh that in the joint statement they released lula invited biden for a visit to Brasilia, and biden accepted so one could imagine perhaps then timing it well actually i say that but that'll be election season in the united states by the fall of 2024 uh but yes next year will be will we'll mark the bicentennial of recognition. Uh, both countries will be looking to emphasize the the history of positive relations between the countries.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Andre Pagliarini, for coming on Parallax. Let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work. Uh, I see you a lot in responsible statecraft, of course. And uh, also, what do you hope listeners get
1: out of this conversation? Um, It's a little bit of what I was insisting earlier, which is to see Brazil... As a country with its own interests, with its own history, its own priorities that don't always align with Washington's, which doesn't mean they're bad guys, right? Doesn't make them villains on the world stage. It just means they they have different uh, uh, perspective on what matters to Brazil. Doesn't always align with Washington. It does sometimes. Um, yeah. So I want to thank you for the opportunity for to, to, to talk with you and your audience. Um, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at a pagliar p a a p a g l i a r uh i write a lot about brazil latin america you know things sort of things that are happening now but i'm also a historian so uh i have some some links there to my my uh, academic work if people are interested um it's always a pleasure to talk about brazil right now with an eye towards how we got here so i appreciate the opportunity
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andre Pagliarini. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Views To Parallax Views with J.G. Michael.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem.